being at Duke Divinity School, one of the things that always really aggravated me uh, when you're south of the Mason-Dixon line and as it happened in those areas is for something racial to happen, like when a noose gets hung on a statue campus or a uh, undergrad student thinks that it is fun to write the N-word um, on a wall that separates the east and west campuses. And one of the things that aggravated me the most was that the professors, the people that I expected to stand up and to speak, the ones who were teaching me and forming my mind theologically, uh, it aggravated me. Every, son, uh, every class that I would come in after these events would happen and they would, they would be silent. Um, and I swore to myself, I said, Taylor, you're never gonna be that person. And last night, as I was reflecting on the events that have been going on in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, I found myself at a loss for words. I've never been at a church who is as committed as UBC is to anti-racism, to being an anti-racist congregation, to being inclusive, welcoming people. Um, and so I like found myself like most churches, like go in, I just go in and say like you're all sinners, <laughs> like, you know, like like you should be repenting. Let's repent together. Um, but that's not necessarily the case here. I feel at home among you. Um, two years ago, June uh, 2015, a man, uh, a young boy, just a few years younger than me, um, entered into a church in Charlotte, South, uh, in Charlotte, South Carolina. Uh, it was um, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. He entered into this church on a Wednesday afternoon, and uh, as was the uh, culture of this congregation, they welcomed him with arms open, vulnerable, sharing their chest with this person. And that person took advantage of them and shot nine of them, killing them. Dylan Roof was his name. Dylan Roof's purpose in life was to start a, uh, a race war, as his manifesto said, as we later found out, and uh, I think it's ignorant to think that there wasn't already a race war happening. The events that have been going on in Charlotte are the acts of white supremacists, of millennia of colonization, millennia of colonialist thinking and ideology, of centuries of nationalist thinking saying that like the blood that we shed for this country gives us the privilege to say who's in and who is out. And it is not the way of Urban Village Church. And I feel that as a pastor here, it is important for me to say that we do not stand for those acts. And so, um, will you pray with me? Almighty God, we come to you today with heavy and grieving hearts, with repentant hearts, Lord. We have enjoyed our privilege at times, and at times we have been confronted by the ways that we have sinned against you and your love and your people. Lord, as we enter into this time of worship, let your Holy Spirit be the one that speaks to us as we consider what it means to be committed to a city, to be committed to anti-racism, committed to the love of Christ, which is not the ideology of nationalists. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, sorry. I just had to get that out of the way. Are we okay? Y'all still with me? Yeah. Okay. So, um, we're in a sermon series called Commit to the City, and this week we're talking about the concept a little bit of density. 
And I gotta say, I love lists. Lists, like, you know what I'm talking about, like to-do lists? Okay, if it weren't for lists, I would not have made it through undergrad, I wouldn't have made it through grad school. If it weren't for lists, I would never return a single one of your phone calls or emails. I likely would have not done any of the things that I was responsible for doing in worship today without lists. Lists are great. There's nothing better to me than marking things off a to-do list. It's like as good as like getting into freshly cleaned sheets that have just been stretched over your bed. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, some of you, okay, that's just me then. Uh, is my type A showing right now? I mean, think about all the awesome sorts of lists there are. There are to-do lists, shopping lists, there are grocery lists, my favorite Christmas lists. I've just created a list of lists. Lists are awesome. <laughs> and so it, come, it should come as no surprise that today's, uh, today's text is one of my favorites because it's just that. It's a list. God gives to Jeremiah to give to this group of people in exile a list for how to inhabit place well, how to be committed to the city. However, this list sorts of, sort of flies in the face of the expectations that this uh, crew would have expected to hear. You see, these were just a little context. Uh, the Babylonian Empire had just ransacked Jerusalem, and the Babylonian Empire was huge, and they were really good at, uh, they would come in, they would inhabit a territory, I'm getting echo, is that me? Okay, thanks. Alright, they would come in and they would inhabit a territory, and then they would strategically start to deport people in, in different ways, and the point was that, the, their process was that if we can send people all out across a region, they will assimilate into our culture, and then we'll bring them back all in, and, we'll, and we will have grown our empire. And so Jeremiah is writing to the first group of exiles, and these were the social elites, all right? Like, if a neighborhood was being gentrified, they would be the gentrifiers. These people find themselves suddenly in a reverse role. They've been displaced from their homes, even though they are usually the conquerors. They now find themselves conquered. Suddenly, the people who are used to privilege, power, prosperity, and a facade of peace have none of those things. And they're waiting anxiously with their bags packed. They've just been exiled. Their bags are packed. And they're thinking, okay, God's going to come in at any point, And God is going to side with us again. God is going to overthrow this empire. And we will return home. And you know what? God shows up with a list. And it's a list that essentially says, stay put. Because this place to which I have exiled you is going to be your home for a while. So let's take a look at that list. So number one, or bullet point one, build houses and live in them. I think this is a heavy challenge that Jeremiah levels at these people. Again, it's something they were not expected to hear, but I think ultimately this point is a testimony to the faith that we put in the universality of God. This is a God who abides among the dejected, the unclean, the marginalized. This is a God who does not just live in the temples or in the places of worship. I mean, the, the Jewish people, these people, they thought that this area was just no man's land. This was Babylon. This was the Babylonians' wasteland. It was their penal colony. They were literally sending these people away out to these unclean areas. This was not their home. And yet God says, build. Build and live in that place. 
You'd half expect by this point in history that God would stop breaking our expectations, but I've come to learn that God is a revolutionary God, amen? Amen. God is a God that is constantly challenging us to participate in different practices, practices that transmen, transcend those that are merely that merely meet our self-centered, self-absorbed expectations. I mean, notice what Jeremiah doesn't say. He doesn't say, go find the houses that have kind of started to fall apart, the ramshackled places, and fix them up. And then start charging an exponential rate of rent, drive up property taxes, and then send the people who have already been living there out, and then, and then take over an area. That's not what he's saying do. He's saying build houses and then live in them. Get comfortable where you are. I don't know about like the mid- you Midwesterners have all your weird lingo too, but like in the Southwest <laughs> where I grew up, uh, if um, we say y'all and, and, and one of the things that you asked us, like what is the room in your house uh, that, you, that you get comfortable in? What, what would y'all say? Oh, you do say den. No. Oh, okay. All right. Family room. Okay, family room. I mean, I was thinking like the proper term is usually like a living room, right? But like for me, that word was den. So like the den is the place that you go and you throw your shoes everywhere and you put your nasty feet on the coffee table and you like get with your family and you just get together, right? All right. Well, Anyway, so uh, people have been telling me, uh, like, Taylor, you spend enough time driving, like, being on the city transit, you're going to start to experience some real weird things. I, I experienced my first, just, it was interesting. It was a tense situation. So I transferred from a bus onto another bus in the middle of a loop. And as I get out, I'm thinking, like, man, this is like a cramped bus. And then I realized there was actually no one in the back of the bus, but there was, like, three or four people. They were transient people, all, like, kind of blocking that aisle. You know what I'm talking about? So this lady with like this double wide decker like baby shoulder and it was kind of sticking into the aisle and there was a man with a motorized wheelchair who was in the priority seating and this other kind of transient man who had one of those shop, those deep shopping carts and a tube, an old tube TV sitting there. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Anyway, and, um, and the bus, it, it was getting so congested that the bus driver pulls over. She says, we're not moving until you clear out my aisle. And we sat for five minutes. I, I kid you not. After two minutes, I looked down. I was like, it's at least been two minutes. So, I don't know. It could have been longer. And finally, they all kind of just squeezed the side. And you can just feel the few people, like myself in the back. I was supposed to be meeting Darren. And Darren's always late, so I wasn't worried about it. <laughs> so, I was, I was like, we're good. But you can feel the tension in this bus, all right? Density is palpable in the city. Density is palpable when people have to get together. I could feel it when I'm weaseling my way through these people's, through this like little aisle, if you'd even call it that, on this bus. It's easy for our homes to become silos that we retreat to. It's easy for our dens to become safe havens away from the density of the city. But I think that it's when we begin to view our homes like that that we begin to exploit the disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. The people who need our homes more than we need them. Instead, what if we saw our homes as an opportunity to build genuine connection? What if instead of, of hiding from the density of the city, Jeremiah asked us to create den cities? Mm-hmm. 
Cities that are open to the possibility of new connections and new relationships. Oh, but I don't have time for that, Taylor. Like that, uh, oh, Taylor, no. Taylor doesn't have time for that. That's what I should be saying because I make excuses all the time. We make excuses all the time, but what God is saying to these people through Jeremiah is 70 years is how long you're going to be in exile, and that is enough time to get to know your community. Chicago is a transient city. I'm only supposed to be here for 12 months, and then I found out like a month of that is going to be like cut short, and then it's already a month and a half in, so like time is flying before me, before us. If Jesus' ministry was three years, and it only took him three days to invite everyone into his father's house. So build houses and live in them. Number two, plant gardens and eat what they produce. I think this is an invitation to do economics differently. It's easy for us in a city that is a consumer-driven city to get caught up in the rat race and to forget about the humanity of the people who make up this city. I'm sad to say that I've only been here a month and a half, and I'm already starting to get kind of used to people asking asking me for money. Like, the first, like, two weeks I was here, I spent a lot of money on uh, people asking for money, and... uh, but it, it's, it's problematic for me that I'm becoming numb to this reality. Planting gardens and eating what they produce, I think, is, yes, it's an invitation to join God in the creative work of caring for creation, of not assuming that you can just go buy produce and it just comes out of nowhere, but of recognizing that there is an ecological justice issue in cities. But I think this is also about something a little bit deeper. For any gardeners, anybody grow up on farms? Midwest, like some of you guys grow up on farms. For those of you who farm, you know, like, farming isn't easy. And you actually aren't in control of a whole lot of the things that you do. You just kind of nurture the plants. But what strikes me about farming and gardening, I grew up gardening a little bit. You kind of start, you learn to know, as you get to know your soil, that there is already an entire ecosystem Millions and zillions and trillions of bioorganisms already living in the place that you are planting. And I think in the same way, it is important for us to be humbled by the fact when we enter into a city to realize that there are already ecosystems and communities in existence. And what we are not called to do is to come into those places, plant ourselves, and take over and try to control those ecosystems, but to recognize that there is beauty in them, that there is flourishing in them, and then without them, we would not have any produce to eat. So what does an economy like this look like? What does an economy of a God who is revolutionary look like? Well, I think it looks like this. I think it looks like a gift economy, an economy of abundance, as opposed to an economy of scarcity. You see, in an economy of abundance, there is room enough for all people. There's always enough to go around, and in in an economy of abundance, we embrace our densities. Our arms are open like those people who open their arms to Dylan Roof, and we say, come in and eat with us. But in an economy of scarcity, we lament the density of our cities. 
Because we are in competition with every person in this place. There's not enough goods to go around. And so it's me against you, and when it's me against you, our arms become closed in on ourselves. Our doors are shut, and those houses and homes that we have built are no longer welcoming spaces for other people. This is not the economy of God. This is not the way of God. We consumers find ourselves so consumed with the rat race that it has seeped into our theology. How many of you have heard before in your churches that God created us good and beautiful, and we sinned against God, and therefore we have this huge debt to pay. You heard that language of a debt? We have this debt to pay, but we don't have within us what it takes to, to pay back that debt. This theology has been, has co-opted Christ in such a way that it says, well, Christ is the only one, so you, gotta, you have to give it all to Christ to pay that debt. But the, the issue with that is that's not, in my mind, the way God's grace works. This is the grace of God, this is the grace of God, people, that God gave us, gifted us the greatest gift of all, the gift of God's only Son. So that what? So that we could then receive an even greater gift, the gift of salvation. There's no reciprocity here, there's no interest paid, and there sure as heck is no exploitation of other people. The divine gift economy of abundance of God. In that sort of economy, all things are shared. Ecosystems are embraced for what they are. All people are welcomed to the table. So number three, get married, increase, have children. When your children have, like, get old enough, have them get married, and then they have children. I, I have to admit, I have a little bit of an issue. I'm going to switch sides now. <laughs> okay. Okay. I have a little bit of issue with this one because it begs the important question: well, What about those people who don't necessarily feel called to getting married, or who don't feel called to parenting, or what about the people who do and for whom that just has not necessarily become a reality at this point in their lives? I think those are all really important questions that I'm sorry I cannot tackle now, but let's get coffee. Okay. Uh, not that I have an answer for it, but, but let's get comfortable. But I think maybe perhaps, given the context of the people to whom Jeremiah is giving this letter, there's a tinge of hope in this. You see, these people were devastated by their situation, by their predicament. I mean, their home, their sacred center of, of geography, their place that they worshipped and knew God, the place where the temple was, the navel of heaven to God, had been ransacked, and they were kicked out of it. They looked around, and it was doom and gloom everywhere, and they feared the worst. And their expectation, again, was that God would show up, this military leader would help, God would raise up a military leader like David, King David, and would overthrow them. They were devastated by their situation. I think it's easy for us to fall into the fear of stereotypes of the city. I look about, I, I think about the stuff that's been going on in Charlottesville, and I, I see this in the ideology of white nationalists and white supremacists. Fear drives them, fear of the other. These people don't have their arms 
open like the people at Mother Emmanuel did to Dylan Roof. Their arms are closed and they are not willing to embrace arm open other people. I subscribe to the DNA news. Any of y'all subscribe to that? Like, I'm kind of like hit or miss with it. Because like some of the stuff is like, oh, hey, cool, new restaurant open, new gastropub, whatever. Um, and then a lot of other things are like, do was hit. Guy stabbed five people, carjacked. I mean, it's just like, bam, like one after another. And I'm just wondering, like, what are you promoting? Like, is it fear? Is it, is it embrace and love of your city? I think it's so easy to get caught up in the gloom and the doom and to never see the beauty of the place that you're planted. Gloom and doom fuels fear. Fear reduces cities to stereotype. Fear reduces people to stereotypes. But hope, hope in the future, hope in what could be when we open ourselves up, hope sees beyond fear to a future that is blossoming. And so Jeremiah is saying, Every marriage, every union between persons is a testimony that love will win the day, even while you are in exile. Every child born in exile is a testimony that this land, that this place, that this world is still inhabitable, and that the fear that drives those who want to cast judgment on the other will not overcome. Number four, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, there you find your welfare. I think this is perhaps the most crucial point that Jeremiah gives these people. Without this guiding principle, our following through on the other tasks is bound to be exploitative of other people. When we rely on our own devices, our own mentality, our own modalities, our understanding of what peace and prosperity looks like, then we are bound to inevitably at some times be guided by fear and stereotypes to reduce others and to reduce our communities and neighborhoods to which we've been sent to nothing. But there is a way, there is an alternative to doing life, to committing to the city. It's a subversive politic. It's the politic of God. I think it requires the recognition that Jeremiah reminds these people that committing to the city means committing to the people in your city, even the ones that you consider your enemy, even the Babylonians, maybe the white supremacists, I don't know, but definitely the ones that the white supremacists name unclean. It requires recognizing that our connections to one another are not this perfect spider web. Spider webs are beautiful. They're not this perfect spider web. I saw this the other day. I don't remember where. But our connections look like this. They're complex. They're messy. But in them, there's this beauty to them. Our relationships in a densely populated area are multiply, are confusingly multiplied a hundredfold. But there has to be a way to maintain these relationships in a manner that builds up houses and gardens 
and produce and friendships and families and relationships without ever breaking them down, without ever reducing them to nothing. I mean, I think this is kind of the problem with gentrification. It's that, that elephant in the room that we don't quite know how to like deal with. What does it mean to commit to your city? It probably doesn't mean like driving up property taxes and sending the people who have this long history of being an area out from that area. I came across this definition the other day. Uh, it was the best definition I could find when I was kind of researching, like, what is gentrification? And this man says, uh, gentrification is, an er uh, is when an area is generally improved, but in such a way that everything worthwhile about it is destroyed. We know, people, that the God revealed in the person and work of Jesus is not in the politics of tearing down is not in the politics of reducing. No, God is for us, not against us. So much so that God is with us, leading us into our places of exile, into unfamiliar areas or unfamiliar relationships. You might have been in the same neighborhood for the last 10 years or like my wife and I for a month and a half. It's a new place for us, and there are always opportunities to be engaged in new and unknown activity. So what does it look like to commit to the density of the city? It looks like creating den cities, in which we both find comfort in the homes of our neighbors, no matter how clean or unclean we think they might be. We are not in the business of purifying people. That's God's work. What does it mean to commit to the density of the cities? It looks like inviting those same people into our dens, arms open, like the people at Mother Emmanuel two years ago when they invited Dylan Roof, their would-be killer in. It looks like having arms as wide as Christ. And he hung on the cross, saying, Come in, all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.